Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Russo, CEO and founder of Exaptic. We specialize in social telepresence and educational robots. We are also the host of the Melbourne Robotics Meetup Group, as well as co-host of Women in Robotics, the Melbourne Chapter. Today, I'm expanding my podcast to include guests from other countries. It is a great honor for me to introduce Nicholas Nadal. Nicholas is an executive and project director at Halodi Robotics, leading the expansion into North America with the mission of bringing safe and capable humanoid robotics robots to everyone. Nicholas, welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Nikki, for having me. Very excited. Now, listen, Halodi, I pronounced that right, and your surname, Nadal, that's right, isn't yes, it? Yes, that is, that is very right. Halodi Robotics and uh, Nicholas Nadeau. And and you're based in Montreal, so obviously you all speak French then. I, I looked at your resume and I was going to um, give a bit of a blurb where you did your education, but I decided, look, I speak two languages fluently and French isn't one of them, so I'm not going to try and butcher the, the pronunciation of anything, so I'm sure we're going to get to it and you can pronounce it beautifully. Very good. So you're one of these gifted individuals that I've had the pr- privilege of speaking with on this podcast. Um, you could have been a medical doctor, but instead you did a PhD in robotics. Tell us about your journey. So that, that, that's right. Uh, once upon a time, when I was leaving uh, CEGEP, our college, basically, between high school and university here in Quebec, um, I was heading down the, the pre-med pathway, thinking I'd, I'd go straight into med school. Uh, but a fortunate encounter with a friend of a family who was an a engineer-turned-doctor, uh, guided me on the engineering path and said, one of the best things, especially if I wanted to be like an orthopedic surgeon or something in the future, was to maybe get some experience before diving right into the medical program. And so I decided to me- mechanical engineering. It was the closest to the skill sets and my interests that I had at the time, thinking that uh, knowing how structures work and all those forces and things like that would serve me well as a, a potential future orthopedic surgeon. Um, Along the way, uh, built race cars with the student FSAE team and fell in love with engineering as a whole and the, all the thermodynamics, the fluid flow, the mechanics and everything like that. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, McGill University did not have a mechatronics program, so I stuck building race cars. Uh, but fortunately, my first internship uh, turned into a job offer where I was able to be a design engineer, part of a company called Rogue Research doing biomedical applications. And so I spent the better part of a decade with them um, designing brain implants, surgical devices, brain simulation devices, imaging equipment, and really combining my love for the mechanical and design engineering side of things and having my toes still in the medicine world um, and really contributing back to things that could help people in a lot of ways. Uh, along the way, um, made the, I'm not sure yet, good or bad decision to do a PhD uh, and that, that was quite the adventure. And that was my, really my first foray into robotics. Um, and so that I was able to work with a lab here in Montreal out of Ecole de Technologie Supérieure, our, our ETS, our um, basically a state engineering school, phenomenal lab. We had one of every robot you could think of, everything from the cobots to the industrial robots. And uh, having access to all this equipment really really added to the mechanical side, the biomedical side, and gave me the opportunity to do the software engineering, the robotics engineering, that systems engineering that you need to be really a full stack roboticist. Uh, My PhD was focused on bringing collaborative robot safety to freehand medical ultrasound. So once again, still keeping my toes in the medical world. Um, I got trained as a sonographer in Canada, uh, making sure I had the skills to understand what I was doing with the collaborative robots. Um, in parallel to that, started a consulting company, uh, consulted as a basically a rent-to-CTO for a bunch of startups around Montreal through the, the venture capital circuit with Founder Fuel mentoring at Techstars and things like that. Uh, joined a Y Combinator company, uh, Aon 3D, as their head of engineering. Uh, they just officially announced their Series A that they closed last year. And since then, have joined Holodi Robotics as the, the project director, um, leading the international product, projects around the world, everywhere from here in North 
America to Sweden, Norway to Italy, where we have our robots being deployed to real world applications. Wow, like it's like there's a lot to unpack there. Um, probably starting with with someone that looks so deceptively young. You've you've done a hell of a lot in your career so far. Um, Tell us, I just want to backtrack to you when you went to university and you didn't, they didn't have a mechatronics um, course available there. That's very interesting. Yeah, no, that, that was really unfortunate. It's one of those things I look back on and, and realize um, maybe teaching us Fortran and C98 was not the most progressive languages and teachings that they could have given mechanical engineers to set us up for success in the future. Um, but uh, it, it's one of those things that... Uh, you really need to get your hands dirty. And that's what I really enjoyed McGill. Um, fantastic school to really train you and make you razor sharp with the theoretical knowledge. But then compared to my education I received at uh, ETS, the, the French Technical University, that was much more practical. They expected you to know how to actually apply your knowledge to the real world situations, not necessarily deriving fundamental equations. Um, so a fun story from that was McGill didn't let you use calculators on most exams. And so you'd have to be able to do everything in your head or by hand, uh, deriving things and getting working. Uh, the first time I did an exam at ETS, it took me the full time because I was used to not using a calculator. But then I realized they let you use at ETS the, the, the Texas Instruments fancy calculators. My next exam took 15 minutes because once you have the theoretical knowledge down, <laughs> those, those things are like cheating. They looked at you and went, this is a super kid here. Like, what, what have we got here? <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I'm just going to the mechatronics since because um, a lot of universities in Australia also didn't have mechatronics like as a, yeah. as a recognized degree now. And this is, of course, all changing with, with robotics now and the use of it. Yeah, no, definitely a mechatronics program. I see it as, as fundamental now, especially for where the world is going. Yeah. Some uh, universities call it uh, systems engineering. And so that's actually what ETS calls it, the Genie de Systeme. And that's really combining a mixture. You come at a bit like a jack of all trades, but specialize in automation and systems. You do a little mechanical engineering, a little software engineering, a little electrical engineering, give you that full stack hardware baseline such that you can really succeed as a systems engineer uh, when you bring integration automation to the manufacturing sector, to the medical sector, to startups, honestly. So just touching on startup land in, in Montreal and in Canada, t- tell us a little bit about the landscape there. Um, what's it like and, and what resources do you have to help you, companies coming in new? Yeah, so so uh, Montreal in particular, we've had a booming couple of years now. Uh, we are really growing to be a bit of the AI machine learning um, capital on the Northeast coast as compared to Silicon Valley. Fortunately, our rents are a lot lower than the Silicon Valley area. So the cost of living and lifestyle is that mixture of North American European life. And uh, it's, it's, it's really been incredible having access, especially in the Montreal area, to everything from AI startups to the web development world, um, robotics. I could see just outside my window, a robotics company right across uh, a canal nearby. There, there's a little bit of everything we have, plus our university ecosystem. So Montreal, off the top of my head, has about five universities within a 10, 15 minute walking distance from each other. And you'll find in between each of them, they have their startup incubators, they have their accelerators, they have little startup shops here, there and everywhere. So it's, it's really a vibrant ecosystem for anybody who wants to jump into companies, launch companies. We have a phenomenal tax credit system as well for anything that's innovation related or R&D, um, really to jumpstart your 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 venture okay so i mean obviously not just um limited to canadians it's it's open to anyone who no. wants to come there what a yeah. fabulous no, we have a very, yeah. very 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 easy immigration policy where basically if you're if you're a technical skilled worker coming into canada is has very low barrier to entry maybe i shouldn't advertise that on this podcast because we'll see a, like an outflux of, of australians <laughs> please stay here australians we don't want you to go anywhere <laughs> it's, it's, it's commonwealth we all we're all part of the yes i know this big family no nicholas you can come to australia i think we need your brains here so tell us about your work at Halodi robotics and then what 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 are you doing there yeah, so so I'm I'm the project director, really overseeing the the, the projects and the deployment of the robots into yeah. the real world. Um, I also wear a separate hat as the head of recruiting and the head of uh, the director of product role as well, overseeing a lot of the design and development and the building of the team. 
Um, so I've been with the Hello Robotics for just over eight months, I believe now. Um, company was about 19 people when I joined. We have since passed that the 45 threshold, so really doubling wow. the company, probably going to double again over the next year. Um, and really growing internationally, be able to diversify ourselves in terms of our people, but also to reach out around the world and work with the best people no matter where they're located. Um, so I uh, was the first international employee really starting the the Montreal headquarters for North America. Mm-hmm. Um, company is based out of Norway in a town called Moss, about 45 minutes south of Oslo. We have just this year as well, not only started the Montreal office, started an Oslo office, started an office in Bologna, Italy, and another office in Dallas with another satellite office in Oakland, California. So really spreading ourselves around the world to, to connect with the best people uh, no matter where they're located. And really passionate people who want to be part of robotics innovation driving performance-driven people, people want to work with a tight-knit team where everybody is an expert and you really have to push yourself sometimes to keep up with how how incredibly smart and skilled the people are. Yeah, uh, but from a company perspective, well, go ahead. No, 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 carry. Okay. Oh, from, from a company perspective, um, we've, we've been in the uh, R&D space for the past five, six years. So working with the top research universities, ETH Zurich, TNO in the Netherlands, University of Twente, and then with North American partners like Google, DeepMind, NASA, JPL, IGMC, Toyota Research Institute. Um, but we as a company can only grow so big selling one or two robots mm-hmm. to these R&D labs. Uh, coming out of that, we have, as, as you can sort of see to my top left there, for those who can see the, the video, it's a 24 degree of freedom system. It's a mobile robot. It's humanoid. So two arms with a seven kilogram payload per arm, machine vision on board. It's self-balancing. So it was really a one-stop shop platform for these R&D labs to do all their research from collaborative robots to machine learning and computer vision. Um, but now we're really exploring how to bring our robots into the real world. And that, that's a big, that, that is the number one focus of my role at the company is to explore how can our robots be part of the human world instead of changing the human world for robots. And this is, this is a little different than one of the work I was doing in my PhD and especially with the, the standard collaborative robots, your KUKAs, your ABBs, the cobots out there where you build smart factories, industry, very industry 4.0, you often build it for the robots. You, humans are sometimes an afterthought where the ideal is actually a black box facility where raw material goes in, widgets come out, and you don't even need to light it or heat it in between, yeah. saving you a lot of costs and increasing efficiency. We want our robots to really be part of the human world, interact with the human world as humans do, which explains our humanoid form factor. Um, being able to work alongside humans, uh, that anthropomorphic physical human robot interaction is really important to us. And uh, this this working with our clients in the loop, overseeing these projects and really interacting on a day-to-day basis with our project partners, getting their feedback, their user stories, their functional requirements, feeding it to our design and development teams as part of their requirements for the design of our next generation robot in parallel. And then coming back to the projects with design updates, very agile, very closed loop to make sure we we keep it in the loop. We test early, test often, deploy early, deploy often, and uh, really make a product that the world wants, not the product we think the world wants. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting point because a lot of the robots um, and and a couple of the, the guests that I've had here have um, said to me that the robots that they've ended up with have been um, conceptualized in universities and you've got this robot now, now what are you going to do with this robot? So you sit with this robot and this goes hand in hand with the adoption rate of robotics. Like, you know, people say to me, especially, you know, like I deal with telepresence robots. So what do you do with this robot? You know, if if I'm not able to give them like 10 use cases, like chip, 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 like this is where this technology is being used. It's just another, like, you know, I don't want to say gadget, but I, I think that's part and parcel and I don't know what your adoption rate, we'll talk about this now in, in Canada, but certainly in Australia, the adoption rate of robots hasn't been that great. Um, what's it like in Canada? So so in Canada, uh, it depends who you talk to and which sector they're in. We have a very strong SME, so small and medium-sized enterprise uh, sector, especially in Quebec. We have a strong automotive sector across eastern Canada, so Ontario, Quebec. And so in the automotive sector, strong adoption. I think we're actually leading the curve in terms of worldwide adoption per capita. Um, in the other sectors, we're lagging behind a little bit. You see, you see this in a lot of uh, North American and Western European countries that are lagging behind in robotic adoption, especially when compared to um, 
Eastern Asian countries where adoption is actually staggeringly high um, and very impressive. Um, some people might blame COVID as slowing a lot down. Um, I'm sure a lot of uh, financial directors out there are, are redoing their for forecasts now after the past couple of years have really shifted everything about. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the adoption is, um, it's strong and the willingness is there. But what I really see is that there are there are some significant barriers to entry um, to the adoption. One is a, a lack of training and the understanding of how to make it a flexible application. Yeah. Um, there, if we want to be agile, we can't necessarily spend um, extraordinary amounts of time, money, resources into setting up a work cell and then having to tear down every two weeks every time we want to change production lines. And North America isn't necessarily known to do as large production lines as other countries. Um, the other bit is the, the cost of entry. Uh, CapEx for, for these work cells, for robots, they're not cheap. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's hard to always justify the, the overall expenditure upfront before you really get into the application. Um, rule of thumb that I used to use back when I was doing some consulting and back during my PhD work was that your cost of an application is about three times the cost of your robot. So one third of the cost is the robot itself. The next third is about the, the work cell and the tooling and everything you need to put around it. And your last third, and this is one of the big ones that people never think about because they often think labor is free, but it's your labor. It's, yeah. it's, it's the integrators and software engineers and the test engineers that are putting it together and making sure it all works out. Um, and, and I see people who look at like some of the, the cheaper cobots, you know, like say the universal arms, for instance, they're phenomenal robots that you can get for a pretty low cost compared to other robots out there. And they think that their whole application will then cost $30,000, $50,000. They don't think of all the extra add-ons. And once they start getting into the paperwork and realizing how, how much will go into building a robotics application, that's where a lot of people start to get cold feet. Um, and if we had, if really, if we had an easier entryway into that, where um, we can almost do it as robots as a service where it becomes a cash flow operation yeah. instead of an upfront capex. That becomes a real a much easier pill to swallow because you could connect your cash flow directly to the value of the app your, uh, of your application over time, yeah. and uh, not not a huge investment upfront. I think um, I think you've you've touched on a couple of points there in terms of um, the adoption of why the adoption rate is as it is um, in robotics. Um, going to your thoughts on the future of humanoids and um, human robot collaboration. What are your thoughts on that? So, so I, I want to actually connect it back to what you, you mentioned before, where you specialize in like telepresence robots and things like that. We, we sort of specialize in telepresence robots as well and yeah. in a different type of way. Um, we're actually finalists in the X prize right now for the avatar project, uh, really trying to explore how can uh, humans from a distance interact with other humans and environments through robotics? And so this is where um, things become really interesting in the applications we're deploying to. So in North America, we partner with ADT Commercial Security, uh, exploring the security guarding world. Can we have our robots automatically and autonomously patrol hallways at night, check if doors are locked, look out for intruders? In a very high level sense, be really smart video cameras with manipulation capability. But the, the, the extension to this and the dream is, can we have multiple robots on multiple floors in a building all doing autonomous patrols? And then if a security event is detected, can we, have, can we then bring the human in the loop? Can the human don VR goggles and sort of become the robot, see what the robot sees, hear what the robot hears, manipulate the robot's arms using the VR technology, um, interacting with the world, resolving the security event, and then be able to teleport to another robot and another robot. And you can extend this further. Can you have a global security operations center in one centralized location be able to service many different buildings in an area, in a geography, in a country? Um, and so that that's human in the loop is really where I see the future of human-robot collaboration. It's, it's not about, I, I do not believe at all in terms of replacing uh, humans or things like that. It's really about how can we leverage the skills of the robot and the skills of the human to make the outcome more valuable, make the uh, application more effective and more efficient. Is the same thing back in my PhD work with medical ultrasound was sonographers have some of the highest rates of carpal tunnel syndrome in, in the medical industry from all the repetitive um, motions with the, the ultrasound wand, the probe. 
robots are very good at repetitive tasks and they're actually a lot more accurate than humans are in terms yeah. of following trajectories. Can we leverage the expertise of the human side of things with the, the rote task, the laborious part of the, with the robot and just make the whole application and the outcome much more effective for the end users, the patients, the people involved all along the value chain. Um, so that, that's where I see human, humanoid robots really coming in the next few years, five, 10 years out is, is that collaboration, not just from a manufacturing standpoint to get more widgets out per hour, but really from an outcome standpoint, can we make our society and everything connected to it much more, much more effective and much more um, fair, I almost want to say, for all people involved. Yeah, one of my previous guests, Nicholas, um, Professor Michael Mulford, he was telling me that um, uh, some of these predictions and uh, like we're now in 2021 and I, I can refer back to some literature that I read when I started out in this industry saying in um, the year 2023, this is what's going to happen. Like half the world is going to, you know, your workforce is going to like really wild predictions and not substantiated on anything. And people read this and they go, oh, these robots are going to come and take our jobs. So I think um Number one, these predictions don't do us any favors because they're not true, number one. And and secondly, um, it makes people resistant to using technology that can actually make a huge difference in their lives. Just talking on, um, you know, so the the one that you're doing and you're checking, um, doing sonographs, that, that if you've got this technology available, then use it. But, but there's this bit of a resistance. Now it's going to take my job. So... Yeah. Um, what do you think about um, the the human robot interaction, safety, and failing gracefully going forward with all of these um, predictions in mind? No, and and, and definitely the, the like the key word, and I, I love that is failing gracefully. Um, there's there's so many applications in the industrial world where something goes wrong, you just stop. A human will come in and reset the application and keep going. But when it comes time to physical human-robot interaction, it's not a question of if problems will happen. It's really when the problem will happen. Humans are very creative at causing problems that programmers do not predict. Um, and especially having humans in unstructured environments with robots in unstructured environments, it, it creates, I want to say, risk, but not always from a safety standpoint, but more from what what can come up standpoint. And so like, if we connect it to the, the ultrasound work, Ultrasound is a great example of where uh, simply stopping the robot upon contact detection, upon collision, upon something detected is definitely not necessarily an appropriate reaction strategy. You don't want to end up clamped between the table and the robot holding the ultrasound or one. That's, that's not a good situation to be in for anybody involved in that. And so um, robots having an awareness of body contact location, an awareness of the humans, the physical robot interaction programming and designing applications where failure is expected and how to come out of a failed state back to a known safe state. It's honestly one of the challenges in robotics right now, whether you're in the academic world, whether you're doing work like I did back in my PhD, or whether you're in the humanoid world where I am now really interacting with humans in unstructured environments. How can we enter back into a safe state after problems will arise. And it's, yeah. it's really about making that application as safe as possible, risk reduction. Um, and that's where your, your traditional risk assessments would come in and really trying to understand where are all the possible uh, input states and outcomes that can be achieved. Um, and this, this is where it becomes more than just an application. Uh, you see a lot of robot design, you mentioned it before, a lot of robot designers just coming out of academic labs or honestly doing what I did in my previous work where I just take a off-the-shelf cobot and apply it to a medical application, which honestly probably isn't always the best solution. Um, you're just, you're taking a hammer and seeing everything that is a hammer problem at a certain point. Um, and so that, that's ext extrinsic safety when we're trying to really design the application to be safe. Um, and, but to truly ha have safe physical human robot interaction, especially in the service robot domain, uh, we need to design our robots to be safe in and of themselves from the ground up. And so this intrinsic safety with this in mind um, we can take a more holistic design approach. We can look at everything from the motor design to the full body weight. Everything becomes part of the optimization problem of making a better robot application from end to end, making it fully safe and making sure that we understand that 
the design choices we make from the very beginning of even designing the robot will have repercussions at the end application somewhere around the world in a completely different domain that we might not be experts in ourselves. Yeah. You know, it, it brings to mind that these companies um, that have spent vast amounts of money and like I'm talking like millions, 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 millions. And then, um, you know, the next thing you, they touted on Time Magazine, they're the next best thing. And then a year later, the company having spent probably like a billion dollars is no more. Talked about um, agile hardware development. Like this is actually crucial. Yeah. Uh, it's hard, hardware development is really easy to spend money. Um, it is mm. actually very incredible how quickly you can spend money in hardware Not development sure. compared to other things. And, and definitely COVID has taught me a lot um, with how to make even distribute teams, make them successful in the hardware side. Um, going through it, my, my engineers, my software engineers, I want to say had a much easier time adjusting to the remote work situation that we ended up in over the past year and a half compared to my hardware engineers, where we had to ask ourselves, how do we achieve milestones still? How do we make prototypes? How do we still collaborate without being mechanically, um, physically on site, using our tools, getting that that physical feedback that like mechanical electrical engineers like to do a lot. Um, but this this is like really taking a step back and understand, okay, what are, what are the primary outcomes that I want to achieve? What are the action, what, what is the core values that I'm trying to target? Not just design gates that we're, which are basically the implementation detail to these core principles. And so, um, like, we need to understand that design is a game of incomplete information. Uh, you're never going to have all the information up front. Uh, and it's sort of like a game of Clue, where as an engineer, you're really trying to figure out, okay, my requirements are this Clue cards, where I'm really discovering the application and what is needed for my design to be successful uh, bit by bit. Now, the more sort of research and feedback you get from the beginning, the easier it becomes uh, in the end, sort of that measure twice, cut once me uh, mentality. Um, but it's really about making the design process, making work transparent and designing with stakeholders in the loop as much as possible, not just at design gates, design reviews, transfer to production points. Um, so this is the sort of the difference between the, the waterfall me methodology where you sort of work in a silo, present, work in a silo, present, and really can we, can we work with our stakeholders in the loop? Can we have our clients, supply chain, customer success, all in the loop with us, getting that feedback early and often. And this, this lets us collect requirements as we go along, such that knowing that we will never have all our requirements in the beginning, it's better to discover them early and often than to discover all the key requirements at the final design gate and have to go back all the way to the beginning. Um, working hardware for me is definitely the primary measure of progress. Investing in my team, and that's both from a diversity point of view, make sure I have people of different knowledge backgrounds. Multi, I like, I like teams that are multidisciplinary. I like it when the electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, software engineers are all part of one design team. I've seen companies where mechanical engineering is one side of the building, electrical goes the other side. And they wonder why when they come together, the wires don't fit into the design. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things like, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's one of those things that, you know, if, if the people were just communicating, working transparently and, and giving each other feedback early and often making quick prototypes, even if it's just a quick 3D print to see form and fit, you discover so much by just building it, manipulating it, testing it even if it's not per perfect um i like i like motivated individuals i like teams that can organize on themselves my favorite style of management is really to get the people who i can empower and let them run free give them give them the right inputs requirements at the beginning set up some milestones and expectations and really empower them to be the experts i like to hire people that are smarter than me such that I, I have full trust in them in, in, in terms of achieving the, the outcomes that we need as a company to keep moving forward. Uh, getting our hardware into the real world as soon as possible is key to that. Um, some of these billion dollar companies that you, you like to bring up before, I, I'd be curious if all that fundraising, all that money spent, where did the hardware go? Where did the development, did they get into people's hands to get that feedback? That's, that's one of my favorite parts working with Heloli Robotics right now is our robots are in the field every single day at ADT in Dallas, Texas, 
in, in the hands of retailers and strong point in Sweden, Norway, in a food packaging machine manufacturers facility in Bologna, Italy, Altopack. Um, getting that feedback, working with their teams, sort of as an agile scrum team, breaking things, moving it forward, understanding that beta testing and R&D testing is dirty, but it's all there to make a better product at the outcome and really having our stakeholders in the loop. They're our most important resource. And they're now, they're not necessarily always right with everything, but taking their feedback and understanding where that feedback is coming from, what are the clear outcomes they want to achieve, combining that with our development to make a better overall product and really iterate test, iterate tests and get that feedback early and often. Listen, it sounds to me as though it's a hell of a complex operation you're running. I mean, you make it sound so simple, but it's not. If your head office is based in Norway, where are you actually doing your manufacturing and how do all these teams take us through like a prototype? If if you're starting a prototype, just take us through some steps. How does it work? So, so uh, let's, let's take it from a high level. Um, First talking about the teams we have primary development and it's a core office that really started companies in Moss, Norway. So I'd say about 80%, 75 to 80% of our engineering staff is located in that, on that site. Um, And that is where our final assembly and production takes place as well. Um, As we zoom out from there, um, we have the Oslo office where some design engineers are based. We have the Montreal office where we have a perception AI engineer and a mechanical engineer. We have our Dallas facility that's really a client site. We have our Italy facility that's another client site. And all this lets us um, work in a bit of a distributed manner. If we do it really well, we become essentially a two-shift operation where when Europe goes to sleep, North America wakes up and continues to work. And hopefully, if everything works out well, we've become double double the efficiency uh, with having people, just the company just turning all day long, all 24 hours. Now, that brings up the great point of communication is key. Um, we can't be successful unless we communicate, unless we work transparently, unless we make sure that um, even the verbal conversations that happen in the hallways are documented in a manner that can connect the other teams together, that connect across time zones, and make sure we're setting up each of our people in the teams um, for as much success as possible. Uh, so we look at uh, a a prototype development. The first thing we look at is, okay, we, we have a need. There's a product owner from a very Scrum Agile uh, sense. Uh, we have the inputs. We have the user stories. We know what we want to see as an outcome. We're, we'll set up milestones. Basically, what, what is the minimum viable product, the MVP, and how quickly can we get to something working? It doesn't have to be nice. It can be quite dirty, broken, prototype very beta. But as long as it's working such that we can get that feedback, um, make sure that it, things fit, make sure that just from a manufacturing standpoint, there's so many things you learn when you just start manufacturing something, when you get that feedback, once again, stakeholders early and often get that feedback from vendors uh, and machinists and contract manufacturers um, to really understand what, what skeletons are in the closet uh, that you should discover early and not way later on when you're trying to transfer to production. Um, so setting up those milestones breaking down the task into small, discrete actionables, trying to really make it time-bound. Um, I'm a big fan of time-bound project planning over scope-bound, where things tend to slip and just expand when you go for scope, but really putting some time milestones to have a little bit of a hustle, get something out, test it, reevaluate, have a retrospective, what went well, what didn't go so well, and move forward from there. Um, and so we like to do a lot of prototyping. We have a, a small print farm in our Norway offices as well, where we're trying to 3D print as much as possible on a, a bi-weekly, monthly basis to get that fit and function testing early and often. And, and then once we're confident, basically, with those, so if the first milestones, get 3D prints, make sure everything fits, make sure everything looks good, uh, get it out to manufacturing as quickly as possible. And that's where we'll use turnkey those, those online uh, contract manufacturers get the turnkey operations in or even go to China for some quick manufacturing um, just to get some cheap prototypes in. And, and that's about the point in parallel we'll start talking to uh, more higher volume or more um, higher quality manufacturers to really work with them on, on design for manufacturing. Um, 
across time zones and really splitting the task so we don't step on each other's toes. It's really easy when you're in two different time zones to not always be in sync with what the next person's doing. So try and do things that are in that can progress in parallel and aren't part of the same critical path in terms of your design cycle. Um, and doing very good design reviews. Uh, my favorite is to do like almost PowerPoint presentation style design reviews of walking through the people, uh, what your design thinking was, having a bit of design journal to it. Uh, it helps to scope your design reviews so that people focus on exactly what you want them to focus on and doesn't diverge into a brainstorming session, mm -hmm. which is really important uh, when working with international teams across time zones. Is time is actually a very scarce resource. Um, we only have a three-ish hour overlap between Europe and East Coast, North America, and we have to make the most of it. So we'll have our daily stand-ups during that time sink and, and maybe a stand-up or two. But ideally, you don't want your engineers stuck in meetings all day long. You want them to use that time efficiently. So you want that overlap to really be almost a handoff time. Like, all right, you're starting your day. Here's everything you need to be successful. And when North America goes to sleep, we try our best to hand off to Europe everything they'll need to be successful with. It's like you, you sound as though you're juggling these balls up in there. How are you managing nationalities, the differences? Like, I mean, you you, you haven't even touched on that. And um, like like we both know, we, we're very different. We, we're human beings, but our nationalities, though, there's a lot of misunderstandings that can come in. I remember when I came to Australia from South Africa, um, I, and I believe me, my style has softened um, considerably in the time I've been here because I've been here for nearly 26 years. But uh, I, I would get feedback like, gee, you're aggressive and, you know, slow down. I go, but I'm not even excited. Like, this is just how we speak in <laughs> South Africa. Like, wait, this is me being calm. So, you know, I really yeah. had to dial it back in the years. And I, I still don't think I've, you know, I, I haven't really, because I can see people when I talk, they, you know, they go, you know, just slow, yeah. you know, settle down. So how are you managing all these things? Oh, is that, I, I don't want to call that a challenge. I want to say it's, it's refreshing in a certain way. <laughs> um uh there like there is definitely a difference between north american style and european style of work um i remember my biggest i think culture shock and i've i've been fortunate i've traveled the world and i i've i've experienced a lot of the different cultures but not as deeply as working with Haloti robotics right now and so my i think my biggest shock was when i came from the silicon valley style y combinator startup where everything's on fire, it's always on fire. And if it's not on fire, you're doing something wrong. Um, to working with them where it was the first time ever during one of our executive meetings, um, the other executives, Norwegians, they got up and left and said, it's time to pick up our kids now, have a nice day. And I'm like, I'm not done with the meeting. <laughs> and so really like this, this, this family first, this, um, you know, uh, wellness first mentality that, it, we're in it for the marathon, not for the sprint. It's it's quite refreshing, and so so about like there's always it's 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 the gray. It's not black or white. Um, there's always a balance of both, but it's really refreshing. Now now you extend the multiple personalities, the multiple nationalities. I think we hit twelve to fourteen nationalities across the whole company right now with about forty five ish people. So we have everybody from Brazilians to Iranians to Norwegians to Canadians to Americans, uh, Vietnamese, everything around the world. And it's, it, it makes for a much better team overall. We get those international perspectives. We get the different ways of working. And if we do it right, we can leverage that into a better product that better represents the world. If we want to build a product that can change the world, especially a humanoid robot with physical human robot collaboration and interaction, uh, we better be a diverse people ourselves to understand all the multitude of environments, industries, people that we're going to be interacting with um, to to really be successful in this. So I'd imagine COVID, um, it has had an impact, but not really as much as people that are seeing each other day to day anyway, because much of your communication would be like similar to what we're doing now via Zoom or some other stand up yeah. that you're doing. Yeah, so so communication-wise, now at the same time, too, country to country, it's very different. Uh, from my understanding, Norway never went into a full lockdown that necessarily like Quebec or Australia might have gone into. Uh, back in my previous companies, when COVID really started, uh, we hit full lockdown in Quebec, and uh, basically we had to figure out how to do engineering without ever touching our office again. And so I was, I was drop shipping 
mechanical engineering CAD workstation computers to individual people's homes just to keep working at a certain point. Um, but like we're very fortunate to live in a time right now where with Slack, with Google Meets, with Zoom, with all these tools at the disposal, it really should not affect most of our day-to-day -day development. And it's really only the hands-on stuff. And honestly, the getting together as colleagues and having those, we say, so happy hours um, with with your colleagues is is the, the number one thing I think I miss the most. And that that human physical bonding, um, very, very much like physical human-robot interaction, you can't replace that over the internet necessarily, or at least not fully over the internet. We try our best uh, doing escape rooms. I run uh, bi-weekly Dungeons and Dragons sessions with the, uh, the overall team internationally. And so it's activities like that, that we can still keep up using these web technologies, but um, definitely I really miss, and I can't wait to be, once Norway opens their borders to fly over and do a team retreat over in Norway I'm actually heading off to Italy next week to visit uh, my new applications engineer and the office that we just established out there and where I'll actually meet the founders, uh, the, the, the CEO and CEO of Holodi Robotics in person for the first time in a third country, because that's the only place we could sort of all converge on at the same time. And so it's, it's going to make for these really funny stories looking back, at God knows how many years of how during the times of COVID, I, I met a couple Norwegians on the internet and decided to join a robotics company. It's, you know what? Like you will look back and you go, really? Did I do all of that? And look where, how far mm. we've come and what we've done. So when you come to Australia, like first port of call is, of course, Exaptic and Nikki. That, yeah. I, I don't even have to say that um, because I have actually invited you and uh, your wife to come and visit in, in Melbourne when we open up. So let's not hold our breath on that one because I think we're going to be one of the last countries. Talking about engineering capabilities and um, education in, in Canada, just uh, what's the landscape like there? Like, what, how strong are your engineering capabilities? And um, looking forward to youngsters in this space, what do they really need for a robotics career? Now, and this, this comes up a lot. Like, right now, we're, we're hiring a lot of senior developers, um, but it, uh, really specialized in their own specialties with many years of experience and who could bring upon the outcomes and just get up and running quickly we'll probably start hiring the more junior develop the junior engineers the junior developers probably q1 of next year and and this is some of the talks i've given and some of the interactions i've had with internship programs and things like that is really exploring okay what what do engineers need to be successful if they want to enter the robotics world and a lot of people come with the the idea that they need to be a crazy roboticist to be um especially good in robotics and it's funny because half the time i'm just looking for a good pure mechanical engineer or a good pure electrical engineer or even a web developer at times any any discipline can contribute and should contribute to robotics um that that full stack generalist is great when you're getting started and you just need a, a one person department uh but eventually when you really start to build teams you want you want specialists in each of the disciplines I would flip that a bit with saying everyone should have full stack knowledge. So I love mechanical engineers with a baseline electrical engineering and a little bit of software engineering skill set, just so that they can contribute discussions. And if we're building multidisciplinary teams, they could all work together on solving some problems, being a sounding board, being that rubber ducky to interact with uh, when trying to resolve problems as, as a team, as a system, um, especially when building complex systems like robotics. So baseline, some basic programming skills, it's no longer optional. Really, every engineer should be able to run some basic scripts and get things off the ground. Um, have full stack knowledge, but be a specialist in one or two things. Uh, really, really contributes both across the organization. We need specialists. We need that mechanical engineer who's great with bearings. We need that design engineer who's just good with batteries. But at the same time, too, being able to wear different hats and jump in to help your, your fellow colleagues is key. Um, uh, and... The number one thing, and this like I'm, I am guilty of this, is when I first joined as an engineer, uh, when I was much younger, the company had a 3D printer, and I thought, oh, all my designs are the best designs because I could 3D print it and it automatically works. And so whatever worked in CAD, obviously, was the greatest design in real life. And it's only until I started actually sending my designs out to my manufacturers where they started yelling at me, telling me I was, I was terrible and my designs were utter garbage, that I realized that 
just because it works, and especially if it works for me, doesn't mean it's production ready. And understanding that there, there is a whole other process called transfer to production, going from R&D to useful in real life um, is a whole other part of engineering that I find isn't really taught in school often. And that's where I like, I really like the design teams in schools, where it'd be like the race car teams I did or Baja or uh, student robotics clubs and things like that is it's it's all great to put together prototypes, but when you actually have to put it out there in the real world, run it in real world scenarios and make sure it lasts through design competitions, for instance, that really changes the way you design. It really makes you think that um, just because it worked here doesn't mean it'll always work. And what can I do to make design for manufacturing, design for maintenance, design for assembly, and just design for better product um, part of my my whole design cycle and the way I think about design. Um, and then the, the last bit is really proof of work is more important than degrees. I've seen a lot of people coming into our hiring pipeline listing the 10,000 Udemy or Coursera certificates that they've done online, but having no work to actually prove that they can actually apply it. Um, real, real world engineering, real world work is all about outcomes. We're, we're hiring people to achieve outcomes for the company. And so being able to demonstrate that you are an agent of change, you can create outcomes is much more important than listing every online certificate you ever taken or every university you did. Um, and so really being outcomes driven, outcomes focused is, is key. And asking yourself as a young engineer going to the workforce, what will I bring to the company and what can I do that someone else can't necessarily do? What outcome can I achieve for you? And it, it helps to put a different perspective on why you're joining the company that rather than it's just a job. So the um, robotics scene now at universities in, in Canada, have you got a lot of mechatronics students coming through? Like, have you got enough? Uh, we've got a shortage in Australia. So I'm assuming probably the same thing in Canada. Yeah, well, it, it depends on, once again, the sector. Uh, there's definitely more than when I started engineering. Um, it's incredible how big, and it's, I'm going to take the my French uh, Technical University ETS as an example. It's incredible how big the the genie systems or the systems engineering department has become uh, churning out uh, tens of thousands of engineers. Um, uh, now, where they go after that is a whole different question. Do they stay in Canada? Do they go to the US? Do they go elsewhere? Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really, uh, it's really growing and we're seeing it more and more that people aren't just doing pure mechanical engineering degrees anymore. I'm seeing more and more people doing like miners and electrical or, even robotics, mechatronics, engineering. Um, I believe McGill University now has the mechatronics program. Every other university in Montreal, I believe, has mechatronics courses. The design teams are a lot more um, mechatronics focused now. There's actually, so um, our summer intern at, at Holodia in Montreal, who is now officially, she got, uh, we, we bumped her up and she's now a full uh, software engineer who'll be sticking with us. Uh, great, great success story right there. She's actually part of a humanoid robotics design team at ETS, uh, where as student club, they are doing basically sort of like the DARPA style challenges with humanoid robots as part of a student design competition, um, which honestly, that did not exist at all when I was in university. And so I'm, I'm really happy to see the continued growth and the opportunities that are available. And especially with the, it's almost like um, over the past, especially five, 10 years, the democratization of robotics where for $30, you can get a Raspberry Pi with the camera kit and you go on SparkFun and buy all the components and you can build full ROS2 robot systems that are using the same navigation, machine learning, computer vision stacks that we use in the industrial world. And so it comes back to the whole proof of work uh, for, for people who want to get into robotics is all the tools are available for you to do basically industrial quality robots you're just not necessarily using industrial cameras and the expensive CNC this and that or high quality polymers, but all the technology is there for you to get your hands dirty with the systems and how to design systems and how to design things and design methodology is the same whether you're doing a $35 uh, robot that you bought off Amazon or a $30,000 robot that you're using in industry. You just have different design requirements. 
Yeah, and uh, don't drop this, please. This is very expensive, and please, please yeah. don't, please don't fail too quickly with this one. This was very expensive. The next three years, what do you think is going to happen in this space? Um, dare I ask you to predict worldwide? Like, I'm not <laughs> going to hold you to this, Nicholas, and phone you in three years' time and go, listen, this is what you said. But, like, what, what's your gut feeling in the space of humanoid robotics and, and our adoption rate of it? So, so I, I really see um, us going from, you know, tens, low hundreds of humanoid robots out there in the next couple of years to hundreds, if not thousands, um, as we start to build out the applications. And, and this really comes to robots as a service. Um, as I mentioned at the very beginning of all this, um, the CapEx cost, that, that the initial barrier to entry in terms of cost, it's staggeringly high when it comes to a lot of robots, especially big fancy robots that pack all the machine vision and multiple degrees of freedom. Um, but if we could bring down that barrier to entry where it's really just a, a cash flow problem and where we scope the usage of the robot to key value tasks that you can put a dollar value around. There's a beginning, there's an end, and whatever task happens in here, you can easily quantify as what is the value if that was automated for me. And then, oh, look, I can get this robot as a service that is X dollars per month. This task costs me currently Y dollars per month. It's a much easier way to do that um, that business plan for implementing it into your facility. And so whether it be security guarding, whether it be uh, the manufacturing industry 4.0 space, whether it be in, in real human environments, um, really scoping it as a service more than just here's a robot that's being deployed, figure it out, uh, brings down the barrier to entry from a cost perspective, bring down the barrier to entry from a flexibility perspective, because then it becomes the service providers that are working with the clients to develop the applications where they don't have to be the experts of how to program robots. They don't have to be the experts of how to make the application flexible if they want to change the application. Especially if it's as a service, you could cut your costs. If you suddenly want to change a whole different way of doing things and the robot doesn't make sense anymore, you didn't spend all that CapEx at the beginning to get the robot. That robot could go back sort of like a leasing model and, and bring value to somebody else in the world. Um, and this, 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 Robots as almost as a, as a flow where robots can come in and out of applications, bringing value where they're needed, exiting the application when they're no longer needed is how I really see this industry growing and very, once again, democratizing robotics, where if you need it for your application and you could scope it well enough, it could come into the application, bring you value, value for the time you need it for the, the task you need it for, and then continue to provide value as long as you need it for. Listen, I agree with you. The like for a company such as myself, the only issue is that it's the you know the investment. For me, it, mm-hmm. it's better to just to sell it. Like there, there's yep. your robot. I'll support you as far as I can. Once it becomes a service, then like it gets a little bit more um, more complex for me, and I need more money to do it. Like it's 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 a flip. It, initially it's a flip way to do it yeah. i would need more money to do it that way and that's probably stopped me having a business model like that i mean i do hire after robots but um my business is more built on i'm just selling them and that's that's where i make my profit um i agree with you going forward it's having enough of the companies around the world and um the hardware does change so quickly you know if uh, yeah. i was at ces in 2018 um i don't know when i'll get there again but i i see that got some it's going ahead next year and uh, you will be showing your passport to get in there. That's your vaccination one. But if you look at the, um, the amount of humanoid robots that, that are on the market, like I just go like, where did that all come from? Where, where did they come from? What are they doing with them and where they're using them? This is my question. Um, Because certainly they were, thousands in 2018 when I was there and we we invest in probably a handful in that 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 I deal with in Australia because you know geographically we're so far from the manufacturers if things go wrong then it's an issue for me Um, but certainly that what you've just described I think is a is a potentially good way forward for a lot of people to do um, to adopt more more robots in their everyday lives and it, it feeds back to the the whole agile hardware development in yeah. a lot of ways is if if we can get more robots into the hands of people, even if it's small applications, even if it's for short amounts of times, we're getting that feedback early and often. But yeah, 100%. It's 
the capex requirement sort of shifts back to the manufacturer in a lot of ways if you're not if you're not offloading the capex to the the end user you're taking that cost in and that's where it, to a certain extent having a separate product line having a different um, business to bootstrap you up to that point so we've been fortunate we have both well threefold we have venture capital backing us we have uh, we have sold the robots as R&D units for the past five years um, um, at, at a CapEx type rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have our motors that we have patented, uh, that we have patented um, as its own product line that we can sell. Um, those are all things that let us and will let us fund robots as a service in the future. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it's a different business model. But what I actually really enjoy about it from a design perspective is it really forces you to think about designed for maintenance and designed for serviceability because if your robots are rotating in the field, they're going to come back. And if you want to maximize the value on them, you have to make sure that they stay robust. And if there's maintenance that needs to be done, it can be done quickly. So it gets back out in the field and continues making money. Yeah, I think the point is that people that use the robots, they're not becoming a robotic business. They're using the robotic technology to enable them to do whatever that. And I was having, I had a podcast with um, a guy yesterday that's big in drones in Australia. And, you know, they supply drones. Now, again, just what you said, it's a service that they're providing to their clients. It doesn't mean that they, their clients are now a drone business. It just means they're utilizing yeah. the technology to do, and they're using drones to do whatever they need to do. That at the end of the day, um, they still have to look after the, they have to do the implementation, the safety accreditation. They have to make sure that the pilots to fly the drone. So it's going to be the same with these robots that, um, you know, if you're doing it as a service, you just go in there, you leave it, you've trained the people. If anything goes wrong, they phone you. And that I think will drive the adoption rate. Yeah. Um, it's just having the companies that can afford it to do it that way. But you hit the nail on the head. It, it enables your existing business. It enables you to um, really bring innovation to to a domain that you are expert in. And uh, we at Holodi Robotics, we want to stay robot experts. We don't want to become security guarding experts. Yeah. We don't want to become retail experts. We don't want to become food packaging manufacturing experts. We want to stay a platform, a robot solutions platform that enables those industries. And so when we work with these partners, we're enabling them to add robots to their existing solutions portfolio to augment their existing yeah. portfolio and to really make them innovation drivers in their industry yeah listen and then again you'll 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 fail hard fail quickly like you'll know then um like is this robot working no i don't want it it goes back to Holodi. give us another robot and because you'll continually be expanding in your hardware range there yeah and and from a data perspective just getting that feedback, continuous yeah. feedback of our robots, that reliability data, that only makes a better product. The more robots that flow in and out and let us, we get to do double checks, do the, like whatever the maintenance cycle might be when it comes back to the facility, that gives us more reliability data to do better design engineering for and really do data-driven design at the hardware level, uh, such that the goal would be to reduce any issues in the future. And this will be very interesting for you, I imagine, going forward as you in different countries at the same time, seeing what different nationalities and how they're reacting to the same robot design mm -hmm. and what people are thinking about it. So, I mean, I'm sure you'll, you're going to be writing papers on this, that what worked in Italy doesn't work in Norway and what works in Norway doesn't work in Canada and like little iterations that you have to do there. Uh, I, I can't wait for that that point where we, we've reached a large enough scale and adoption um, where we can start looking at countries and demographies um, from that that perspective of social interaction with humanoid robots and what what might be good in one country isn't necessarily the same social interaction that might be good in another country and from a programming point of view be very interesting to have almost configurations country specific to make make everybody around the world successful with the robots well, I can tell you, Timmy's got a designer that the um, the wake-up face of Timmy, you can have it in five different versions, but they sent out 
um, bearing in mind that Temi is is all over in the world. And um, they sent out 20 designs that we could choose from, and they've landed on these five. And I looked, looked at the five, and I thought, well, there's one that I like. There's so one of my my preferences got in over facial, you know, like what the eyes look like. But this is based on all the feedback they got from all the countries in the world dealing. So, again, you're going to be facing the same thing, that the feedback, what you think is an absolute go in, in Norway was an absolute design disaster in in Italy for some reason just because of idiosyncrasies um whether it's cultural or whatever language yeah and that that's that's part of the adventure that's part of the challenge that's part of the excitement as an engineer is is facing these like really breaking out of local boundaries and expanding internationally getting that once again getting the feedback early and often if we don't get the robots out there early on as research and development as beta testing getting that user feedback we won't build a product that is diverse. If we don't have a team that's diverse, we won't know about these skeletons in the closet, these unknown unknowns uh, until it's too late. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, what is it called? Like uh, uh, um, when you've got your biases are inbuilt that um, let's not even, we're not going even going into that. That's a completely different uh, podcast for us. Um, I'm mindful <laughs> of your time. Um, I, I'm having a whale of a time because it's a mid morning for me in Melbourne, but it's uh, getting late for you in Montreal. So any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience with Nicholas and may I leave your email address for them to contact you if they want to. Yeah, uh, my email address is nicholas at haloti.com. So N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S at H-A-L-O-D-I.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at engnado, E-N-G-N-A-D-E-A-U. Um, my website is nicholas dot, uh, nicholasnado.com. Um, Haloti Robotics can be found at haloti.com. So H-A-L-O-D-I.com. Um, and uh, otherwise, uh, closing remarks. Uh, oh, on the spot here. Um, no, it's, it's it's been a lot of fun. And I, I really appreciate your podcast being like, what we're lacking right now is really transparency into the robotics domain, really de- demystifying robotics in a lot of ways. Um, it's this whole world of engineering that it's been around for a long time, very from the industrial point of view, um, but is only now entering the real world, the, the common knowledge, the layman, um, and we're seeing it affect people in real life, whether they're be their jobs or on on big announcements, whether you, there's some companies that like to put out these fancy YouTube videos of robots doing parkour. And there's there's often a misunderstanding of what robots are truly capable of. Um, I laugh when I think when people ask me, like, will robots take over the world uh, in the next few years? Uh, my PhD lab, we did the Amazon pick challenge where they send you like the top 10 items and you have to just pick it out of a bucket. Yeah. And that was a terribly difficult thing to do. So robots, they're not taking over the world anytime soon, but the, the general public doesn't have an understanding of that gap of what they see on YouTube versus what is the actual reality of robots, which often, to be honest, works on a Tuesday when the moon is out. Um, and it's it's really educating the world on what robotics can achieve, what kind of efficiency, innovation, effectiveness, value it can provide to people, not just jobs, not just profits, but actual people, whether it be for using telepresence robots or assistive robots, sort of like the the Haloti platform to allow the less abled uh, more accessibility to the world using things like avatar and VR control. Uh, If we can make situations more safe for humans if the robot can go in first and work with humans in the loop such that you don't put humans in danger first that becomes really interesting that it's it's not it it brings value it brings overall value to the world uh not just value to a company or to a bottom line and so that's that's what's really exciting and so really educating the world on what robots is but then also educating demystify them for the the engineers who want to get into this domain but don't understand necessarily how to navigate it at the end of the day, I just need mechanical engineers. I just need electrical engineers. I just need software developers. It's great if you have full stack robotics knowledge, but really be awesome at one of those disciplines and join us and really be able to push the future forward um, with your specialty. Uh, and then the last bit is diversity. Um, we're always looking for for people, different cultures, different genders um, to join us, to be part of the developing the next generation of robotics because if we don't build a diverse team, 
as we saw before, we, we won't build a diverse product that can change the world properly. Definitely. I couldn't have said that better. You, diversity is the name of the game. Um, different people, different backgrounds, different sexes, um, just different points of view. So, Nicholas, it's been absolutely wonderful um, speaking with you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure we're going to be touching base again uh, in a couple of months' time. And I no doubt you will be coming to Australia and um, Melbourne will be your port of call. First port of call, I may add, so I can introduce you to all the wonderful robotics people. I'm actually doing a conference here next year, so you, you may laugh and jest, but um, it's called Generate 2022, and it will be industry, academia, and enthusiasts coming together. It's going to be in March, so put that in your diary, the 30th and 31st of March, and um, definitely, if, if we can have an opportunity to host you here, it would be absolutely fantastic. Oh, that sounds lovely. I'll definitely pencil that in and uh, we'll, ha- we'll have a great time. Yeah. So, um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Um, as I mentioned, I'm opening up the podcast to uh, countries, um, the rest of the countries in the world, lots of people with interesting <laughs> stories of robotics doing absolutely amazing work. So if you're interested in being on the show, please do reach out to me and um, we can take it from there. And to the audience, have a lovely, lovely day wherever you are in the world and join me next week again. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.